1: Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy.
0: Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes.
4: Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry?
1: Well, you know, we had you here, uh, God, maybe it was two or three years ago at this point. Don't
5: ask me. I never know what year it is.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, I I very distinctly remember it because I always say you're the person who taught me how to write a book. I
6: love that.
1: So uh, on that note, uh, for the many, many new listeners that we have uh, after having you've gone through some pretty significant changes since you were last here, can you tell us a, a bit about your story, your journey, your background, and how that has um, brought you to what you're up to and, and the work you're doing in the world today?
5: Yes. Okay. As quick as I can. <laughs> mm. Let me take this next this 52 years and get <laughs> it into a standby. Uh I have always wanted to create. I was enamored, obsessed with um, reading and films when I was a kid growing up in a small town in Florida. I went to film school at USC because I wanted to make movies and really hit a roadblock a few years after that, a deep creative... Um, Oh, falling apart. And I feel like those falling apart moments are the moments we get to wake up and choose what might be truer for us, what might be, or what might be leading us along the path of our life. And so in that moment, um, it looked like me saying, I'm going to quit writing for a month, which was um, very, very scary for me. It was like, I was going to, like I said, like I was saying, I'm going to die And out of that moment, a title for a book popped into my head as clearly as if you said it to me. And it was a book called The Woman's Comfort Book. And I had no idea what it meant. But it became a grail and a path. And I followed it for a few years. And eventually, I published that book with Harper um, San Francisco, Harper, just to change from Harper and Road back then. And it became a word of mouth bestseller. And it became the first book to talk about self-care, which is now like everywhere. But back then, <laughs> nobody talked about it. It was like, oh, yeah, I get my nails done. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that just kept leading me for to write seven more books and to lead retreats and workshops and to, you know, just continues to unfold. What is the path? of helping women and sometimes a few men um lead their truest life
1: okay so a lot of stuff there as you can imagine i want to go back (laughs) i did
5: as fast as i can (laughs) yeah
1: well i mean like you said condensing 52 years into three minutes not the easiest thing to do uh you know what i i this is something that maybe i didn't ask you before but uh i'm interested actually in what comes before film school uh Mm -hmm. growing up influences i mean What kind of a culture did you grow up in that would cause you to say, you know what? Film school is where I'm headed. Like, what were the influences that led there?
6: Oh, it
5: wasn't anything from my parents or my culture. I mean, I grew up in If I had done what my parents wanted me to do, I would have married a nice Republican boy. (laughs) He would have taken over my dad's very successful company. I would have grown up and lived a life of incredible ease and and privilege and um, a lot of golf and tennis and probably Alcoholism, <laughs> and my parents are lovely and they're not alcoholics. My, uh, it, my dad's gone, but, um, but that was the life I grew up in. I grew up in a country club life. Nobody was creative. Mm-hmm. My parents didn't have books in the house, but they didn't stop me. They didn't necessarily encourage me because I grew up in a little town. There wasn't much going on that could support someone like me. I was bizarre. <laughs> mm-hmm. I wasn't athletic. I was always wanting to create stuff. But when I did do something of my own volition and agency, my parents were supportive. And um, I think the lesson I took from that is do do it. Do mm-hmm. it. No one's going to stop you.
1: So actually, I'm interested in a few more lessons from that. One of the things that to me is really fascinating is, is that you kind of overcame an environment that you were you know basically consumed by uh and i I think that's incredibly useful to figure out how to do that because you know i I think this is something that i personally have struggled with quite a bit uh even in the last few years as i've done this work is that i've grown up in a culture that has a lot of expectations somehow Mm -hmm. i slipped through the cracks but much later in life and i'm really curious you know how we overcome our environments to reach you know what we're ultimately supposed to do
5: i for me looking back at this age and, ri- and writing the book that I'm writing right now and telling those stories from my early life and throughout my life of these moments when I chose what felt more true to me or that I didn't choose, it is about self-trust. It, it is this deep ability. And we see it in the characters in history that we revere, right? They're the ones that were, we call them iconoclasts. But what does that mean? It means they said, oh, you all want me to do that? Oh, well, that's too bad. (laughs) I mean, think about Georgia O'Keefe, for example. I've been rereading her story. She never, ever bowed to the pressures of her time. She didn't wear makeup. She dressed in black. She had affairs. she she, She painted these wild paintings. She was incredibly successful painter, the first art star that was a woman that we had in the United States. So I think it's somehow we need to nurture, and this is what you've learned to do, you're learning to do right, mm-hmm. is nurture the sense of this is what's true to me, I'm going to follow it, and I'm going to bear the consequences.
1: All right, so we're going to get deeper into that because that's, that's actually on my list of things that I want to dig deep into. You think that in order to cultivate the sense of self-trust, we have to screw up and not trust it?
5: Oh, God, yes. <laughs> <I> mean, <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, or for the few people who might not screw up royally again i'm just thinking about re reading georgie o'keefe's biography again for the third time is that we still have to learn to bear the consequences and it's very painful so i think the myth in sometimes the coaching or personal growth culture is follow your bliss and it will be blissful that is not <laughs> what joe campbell said yeah Follow your bliss and bear it because it's going to burn and it's going to be difficult. But when we're doing it, there's such a feeling of, of this deep rightness. Mm-hmm. So, yes, we do have to screw up. <laughs> we do. and we, But if we're not able to bear the pain and the discomfort of screwing up, we won't orient towards what's more true for us. We'll shut down. And that's what we see so much in our culture is people who are shut down.
1: OK, so we're going to come back to this because there's way too much here uh, <laughs> that basically like there's a whole rabbit hole and I want to dig into all of it because I think <laughs> there's a lot here. But I want to go back um, to film school and, and talk about film school in more depth. Uh, from a perspective of, you know, how thinking like a film school student has influenced and shaped your creativity. What are the lessons that we can take from that? Uh, you know, all, all the things that came from that whole experience of film school.
5: Oh, gosh. like We could talk about that for 17 years. Um, I, just to start with self-trust. I did not trust myself when I went to film school, which as at 19, how could I? But I learned from the really horrible experience I had at USC to trust myself, because what I saw was if I didn't, someone else was going to determine my life and they were going to determine that I wasn't good enough in some respects or was good enough in other respects. So that was the big soul lesson from there. In terms of my work, it taught me about story. I mean, I, you study, I mean, even more so at that school now, but we just studied story. Lucas and Spielberg were the gods. They were everything, They were the mythos of that culture then. So everything was about a story that works, a narrative that drives, show, don't tell. If you write screenplays, you don't get much description, especially back then. You've gotta make it happen in the dialogue, in the action, in the visuals. And you've got to impart so much through so little language. So it taught me a lot about being lean, It's so funny because even now when I'm writing a blog post, it's like in there. Like, how can I show this? How can I impart it? How can I imply it Mm -hmm. without having to, you know, lead people by the nose?
1: So let's talk about that uh, in more depth. You know, I I love that idea of a story and a narrative that drives. How do we discover what ours is and translate that into the work that we're creating and what we're putting out into the world?
5: Oh, that's a great question. It's one of my favorite obsessions is what are the stories that we tell ourselves and how can we find this narrative of our lives and keep following it? Um, For me, it's helped to write. It's helped to write those stories. And there's quite a bit of research about the power of writing our personal narratives. And this is, you know, a, a body of work that's been growing for 30 or 40 years. So, as I'm writing the book that I'm working on, I'm t- telling these stories of these moments in my life. And that's really been transformative for me. So much so that I know now if I d- never decide to publish this book, that's fine. I've already gotten so much value out of it. So I might invite people to write the what I call the crux moments, C-R-U-X, of their lives. You don't have to do it beautifully. You don't have to worry about anybody reading it. It's not about the prose. But it's how honest can you be about those moments that you chose or didn't choose? And you don't have to know if it's a crux moment. Whatever comes to your mind, just start writing about it. Um, Pouring it out, write fast, write dirty, write hot, write into what felt really uncomfortable. That's been incredibly helpful for me. And then over some time, maybe a few months of doing that, I think you'll see a thread emerge, the thread of your deepest desire. And I I believe that we have a deep, deep desire in our lives, sort of a core desire that we come with, Mm -hmm. and that we will follow it and we will betray it. And in doing both, we'll develop this and live this core narrative of our lives.
1: Wow. All right. I think you, <laughs> you pretty much gave me the title of the interview in that uh, little bite soundbite there. So let's talk more about film school. I mean, you talked about story. Um, talk to me about, you know, what happens after film school that gets you to this falling apart mm-hmm. moment. I'm really well, interested in that part of the journey.
5: Yeah, well, I left. I went to film school thinking I would be a director, but you know there was a t-shirt at the time that they had, I wish I still had it, and it was a dog sitting in front of his agent's desk saying, well, what I really want to do is direct. <laughs> so I quickly figured out that everybody wanted to direct and that I probably wasn't at this stage at 19. Um, I probably didn't have the, the uh, chutzpah to do that. So I also really loved writing and I really loved editing. So I started to pursue both of those pretty successfully. And then I hit a roadblock um, with, this is down and dirty honest. I actually was never accepted into the film portion of USC. Back then there was three tracks. The hardest one to get into was production. The second was TV. And the third was critical studies. They And I came to USC not in the film program because they'd actually lost my transcripts behind a filing cabinet in the office, but the university had let me in. So I went and took all the classes I could that first semester that you didn't have to be in the program yet. And then I didn't get in the program, but I got in critical studies. I'll never forget. That was probably the first nervous breakdown of my life. I cried for two days, but then true to my little, you know, Eager beaver will not give up self. I wormed my way into all those production classes until I got to the very highest level two, two and a half years later, probably two years later. And one of the old professors um, went and looked up everybody's records and they came to a public meeting where we were all sitting, getting ready to uh, make these films, these student films. And I was an editor on this film and publicly took. Myself and another writer who has become a very famous screenwriter um, out and said, you can't you can't be on these crews and humiliated us in front of everyone. So that was the end of my editing career. And that left writing, which probably had always been the core thing. But it's harder than editing. <laughs> editing was so much fun. It was so collaborative and visual and writing was left. And so I went back to it and I went back to pursuing screenwriting after school and I got an agent and, um, but I was really sad doing it. It wasn't making me happy. And I have a lot of ideas about why that wasn't so, but finally after about two years of real or three years of really suffering through it, I had that moment that I talked about earlier and really surrendered the writing Mm -hmm.
1: So you should get a lot of ideas about why it wasn't so um, I'm curious why.
5: You're curious why. Say so I I didn't well, understand
1: you said that. you know there, you said it was it wasn't making you happy, and you had a lot of ideas. Oh about yeah, why it what wasn't, are some so of the I'm ideas? I'm really curious. Yeah, why?
5: Yeah, well, you know, again, from this perspective of all of these years later, I, I don't believe I believe I had a fixed mindset versus the growth mindset that Carol Dweck so powerfully mm-hmm. has researched and written about. And the fixed mindset was I don't know how to do this well enough, so I should quit. Instead of the growth mindset, that would have been like, all right, this is really hard everybody struggles with this. Um, Second of all, I wanted the instant payoff. The famous screenwriter who was kicked out of that uh, class with me, as soon as he graduated, he and his partner sold a film for a lot of money that was produced and kicked off their careers right away. I thought that should happen for me, (laughs) right? And we had that all the time in this internet culture. Well, so-and-so got it, then I should have it instead of the apprenticeship model and the slow and painful. Uh Um, wow, I'm not as talented as they are. That doesn't mean I can't learn. So kind of a combo of the fixed mindset and the, I want it now. And then I didn't have mentors. I didn't know how to reach out for help. I thought the help should come to me. And the mentor that I did reach out to turned out to be, you know, again, in retrospective, very jealous of me. She was an older woman and, um, I was having a thing with a guy in the class who she really liked, even though it was, you know, 30 years difference between them. And she really took it out on me. And I didn't see that at the time. I couldn't. I thought, oh, that means I'm not any good. This was a post um, film school um, screenwriting class critique group i was part of so there was a lot of things like that and then finally i think it was the film business is ugly and Hmm. i am not a very hardened person i am i have i walk around with my heart on my sleeve i used to hate that about myself i built a life that makes it possible now to live that way
1: okay um i want to come back to that (laughs) actually let's dig into that you said you built a life that makes it possible to live that way
5: I live on an island.
1: How do you do that?
5: Yeah, I live on an island. How do you do that <laughs> without it
1: letting become a train wreck? Um, yeah. Because that's that's you know one of the things I fear. It, you know, it's interesting, right? Like we we preach transparency, we preach vulnerability, we preach authenticity, and then there's also where do you draw the line?
5: So that's two questions. Which yeah. one do you want me to answer?
1: We'll start the first one. The first uh, one. And living with my heart
5: on my sleeve. I have been lucky enough because of my early success with my book. And then I used that to buy a house many years ago that then increased in value. And that money gave me a little seed that allowed me to then move up here to the island that we live on. And and it wasn't enough to retire or anything, but it was enough to say, I get to live where I want to live instead of living in LA, which wasn't good for someone who has their heart on their sleeve. Mm -hmm. And I was able to keep doing work that allowed me to make a lot of choices uh, that didn't keep putting me into situations that were really hard on me. And I think I've been lucky enough to know the situations and people who aren't good for someone like me, someone who's sensitive, someone who really is very authentic, transparent, and in some ways kind of (laughs) naive. Um, I have an old friend who once accused me of living in a bubble. And I looked at her and I said, yeah, you're right. I do. (laughs) I do. And I made that bubble. Now, that doesn't mean I'm not engaged in world issues, that I'm not an activist, but I can choose to resource myself and then go out and take that action and come back. Um, So it's really, it's a deep choice of how I've I've constructed my life. And it's about to change Mm -hmm, because mm -hmm. we're about to move. Um, uh, around Boulder, Colorado in the next six to eight months. And that's going to be really different. So we'll see how I do.
0: So, Second question, what yes. was
1: it? Well, well, so you know, in in all of that there's oh, also yeah. this sort of balance of the fact that our lives are so publicly on display and there's, you know, vulnerability, authenticity, transparency, all the things that we resonate and connect with, but there's also sort of a line in which okay, that becomes a train wreck. Like where do you draw that line?
5: Well, you have to have enough self-awareness and ego strength in traditional <laughs> psychology terms, really. I there you meet lots of people who don't. They have no self-awareness, so they think by telling you everything about themselves or you know, crying all over you that they are being authentic or transparent. So if you think that's authenticity and transparency, you need to go to therapy. I mean, and I don't mean that in a mean way. It took me years to figure out that oversharing wasn't being authentic. Am I connecting as truthfully as I can in the moment in service of whatever is in this moment? Mm -hmm. So I'm not going to tell you about my sex life on this interview. It doesn't serve anything. Yeah. Right? I'm not going to tell you about what I'm wearing because we're not having a fashion interview. Mm-hmm. So is it in service, but is it also true for me? The place that gets in the way of my authenticity is thinking I need to be somebody other than I am in any given moment.
1: Ooh, I love that. So speaking of which, I think that takes us into something that's really interesting. I think it's a perfect transition to start talking about, you know, these falling apart moments. Mm-hmm. Um, Somehow, it's funny because I, you know, somebody said Trini, It seems like the common thread, like everybody on this show, has had a falling apart moment. Mm. Uh, and I'm really interested, one, in hearing about yours in more depth, mm-hmm. and then navigating the emotional roller coaster of the falling apart moment, so that we come out of it a bit more even keeled and having grown, not you know, and, and better off than worse off. Does that make sense?
5: Yes, it does make sense, and this is very much what I'm partly trying to write my book about, I think that part of it comes with, with experience, but part of it also comes with in the, in the falling apart moments is how, how can we let go of the shame as quickly as possible? Because shame keeps us stuck. It keeps us stuck in regret. And the following, falling apart moments are about letting go In the most profound way possible, but we're scared as human animals to let go because we equate it with death. Rightly so, Mm -hmm. it is a death of sorts. So for me, learning you know a deep, long history of meditation and yoga practice have, and letting go and learning to let go of shame through therapy, through reading Brené Brown's first book, Mm -hmm. which Mm -hmm. remains the most profound one for me, um, that has allowed me to go into these moments and and work with them but i will say i went through a profound falling apart much of it not of my own doing when the core moment of that was getting a divorce from my first husband Mm -hmm. and it took me six years to really come through it so there's a there's a there's a lot of patience and it i'm not easily a patient naturally a patient person (laughs)
0: Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap2Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com tapiphone tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap2Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips.
5: I don't so, know if that's helpful. I, I Yeah,
1: yeah, no, it, it's tremendously helpful. I mean, it raises quite a few more questions. I mean, you know, one of the things that's interesting to me is, is that those falling apart moments often are where we start to ask a lot of questions about what is true for us, something you brought up earlier. Mm-hmm how do you figure out what those questions are and, and get it to lead you to what is ultimately true for you because i can tell you I, like i said i i personally have discovered you know i've gone through that process very recently and once you start to see what's true to you you start to see that often in your darkest moments you were completely out of alignment with what was true to you
5: yeah well i think that i think i think you've just given people a fantastic gift which is if you're listening and you're in that dark time or Maybe you're just in a very blah time, and people ask you, what do you want? And you're like, I have no freaking idea. I, have, I work with so many women in that place. I have no idea. I don't think I want anything. I know we all have desire. So begin to notice, what is it that I'm unwilling to let myself want? What is it that I keep saying, no, that's not possible. No, that's too late. They can have it, but I can't. So often in our resignation and our resentments lie the gold, the truer thing that's beckoning to us. The other thing that I was writing this morning is the crux moment in every situation, small and big, of falling apart, of letting go, is always there for us to step through But we think that we first have to go improve ourselves or make a plan or figure something out. And it really is right there when it glimmers at you. Like, what I really want to do is connect with people. And then we start this whole big shenanigans around what that means. Instead, go connect right then. Mm -hmm. For me, the deepest desire, the core desire of my life has always been to create, to create, to create, to create. And some people would say, well, sure, you've done that. You've written eight books and you've created all these websites and online courses and retreats and yay. But there's this core way that I have continued to, to turn away from it, to turn away from it. And every time I notice myself doing it now, I just stop and I turn into it and I do it. So in some ways, it's so simple and obvious that we our brains are too big for it. <laughs>
1: Well, you know, it's, it's interesting, you know, I I hear you say that. And I I remember, you know, once we sat down and we went through this, this values exercise uh, with a friend of mine, it was basically, he said, here's the thing. He said, now you never make any decisions out of alignment with these. And he said, you'll never run into what you did again.
5: I think that's a little unrealistic.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, I, it, it may Wish that
5: for you. <laughs> yeah,
1: I mean, I, you know, I'm sure there are probably moments in which there have to be compromises, but it was it was kind of, it was very revealing. It, it, mm-hmm. The other thing I think that like was very revealing, he said, here's, you know, he said, almost everything you've done in the last several months in which you've struggled for your creative process has been completely out of alignment with all of this. And he said, no wonder your work hasn't been what it was.
5: Yes, and so we look, we're always looking for pointing out instructions
1: mm-hmm.
5: to what is it that feels true and in alignment with us. But my point is sometimes the pointing out instructions have become very elaborate and we're putting all our attention on the pointing out instructions, not on the actual experience of living what's true for us. And that is painfully obvious and extra scary when life is really falling apart.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, I love this idea of the thread of your deepest desire, uh, and, mm-hmm. and that, that to me yeah, seems like that's been an ongoing theme through our conversation. Mm-hmm. So, here's here's what's interesting to me is, is you know as you look back over your life, the experiences you've had, you know, the stories that, that come together. How do you connect the dots to figure out you know sort of the the through line that really leads to the thread of your deepest desire? Does that make sense?
5: Mm-hmm. It does. Again, for me, it's been, I think it's happened in, a, I, can, I believe it can happen in numerous ways. The writing that I spoke about earlier, and then maybe reading or sharing some of those stories with other people and asking them to reflect back. Do you hear a thread? Um, being in a mastermind group, I've been with the same people for eight or nine years. We call it a brain trust. And they're very spiritually adept, psychologically sound people. And over time, our core desires it have emerged so many times that now we catch them and hold them up to each other and say, "Oh yeah, that's your core desire to um, help a billion people." Um, I, I, I you know with change or I'm, I'm kind of deliberately deliberately not sharing somebody else's core desire, sure. uh, so I'll share mine. You know, oh yeah, there it is, Jen. There it is again. That desire for you to create, to create, to create. Um, so I think having some kind of peer support group, I mean, again, all the wisdom traditions told us that, right? We need other people because we're blind to ourselves. And if you don't want that, maybe it's a coach, maybe it's a therapist, maybe it's a really smart friend or two or three friends. And then I think also beginning to investigate your own life through the eyes of a detective. What are the books that are on your shelf? What are the courses you always wanna sign up for? What is the thing that's been with you since the beginning? But the problem is, it's not about turning it into a thing that makes you special or makes you a lot of money. It's not that, it may become that, but that's never the point. The point is the living of it itself, the juicy, ever-changing, river-like quality of living it. That's what we're looking for. And we miss it when we try to put it into a niche or a category or a tagline.
2: Hmm.
1: Wow. I, I love that. That was just profound. <laughs> you know, it was interesting. I'm, I'm thinking about what you said about the books on your shelf. Um, it, and I, you know, it takes me to a, a very, very recent experience. I, I don't know if you've read this book. It's a, a book by a Japanese woman named Marie Kondo It's called the life changing magic of tidying things up, and it's funny. I read
5: read about it, um, and I picked it up and looked at it, but I'm not a tidy. I'm an over tidier, so it's it's funny,
1: right? Because the book is actually about a lot more than cleaning. Uh, Right. I was intrigued. I read the first chapter and it was, it, what was interesting is you know, her filter for what to remove from your environment uh, is about you know anything uh, that brings joy to your life. You keep anything that doesn't you remove. Mm-hmm. And you know, the reason I, I read it was because we had a guest here who talked a lot about how we design environments for optimal performance and creativity. And what was really interesting was to go through the book collection and remove all the books that I didn't care about. Um, ah, yeah. And amazingly enough, that's when a lot of my writing breakthroughs in the last few weeks, the ones that you have been witness to happen. I got rid of all those books and I looked at the common thread and I was like, all these books are about creativity and art. I got rid of every book about social media marketing.
6: Yeah,
5: <laughs> I love that. That's so brilliant. and It also shows us how it can come in any way that we're when we're honestly seeking what is true for me and not putting it into a box, but mm. seeking it and experiencing to experience it, seeking it to experience it. I love that.
1: Well, I'll add one other comment to that. One of the other things I did is I went and looked at the parts of books, the passages and sentences that I highlighted in almost all the books I read. Mm. Um, that, to me, is another place that reveals a lot of what is true for you. In fact, one of the things that I have to sit down and do now is go through, and especially because I read a lot of physical books, um, ones that the ones that I find to be very, very poetic, I always have physical copies of. and. You go through it and if you look at what you've actually sat down with a pen and underline and extract all of that, it's actually a really, really eye-opening exercise into what actually matters to you. Hmm.
5: I love that. I'm going to give it to my writers on my writer's retreats to do that. I can, and it could totally work when you're looking for the heartline of a particular project, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, if you have a stack of books, like the books that I'm looking at and rereading the memoirs and biographies of women about these crux moments. Hmm. I love that. Brilliant, young man. <laughs> well,
1: thanks. I mean, I have you to you know, thank for some of that. <laughs> uh, you know, l- l- let's do this. Uh, l- let's talk about this all from the perspective of a body of work. Um, mm. Because, I mean, you mentioned seven books, right? And we've also talked quite a bit about impatience. Uh, you know, I think about the, the, the internet culture and how it perpetuates impatience. And I, I, you know, right before we hit record here, I was telling you about a story of somebody whose essay got discovered on Medium and I was annoyed. I was, you know, somebody who's going to be a guest on the show. And I had a bit of envy. I was mm-hmm. like, why not me? I'm like, and then ridiculously enough, it, you know, there's a whole other story that unfolds in which literally the same thing happened to me three days later. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> But it was because I finally said to hell with it, instead of why not me, let's just get back to work. Uh, you know, I, I guess, you know, it, the question really for me is, is you know, when you look at a body of work, how do you cultivate that that patience to say, this is a lifetime journey, it's not one book, it's not one project? Does that make sense?
5: Yeah, no, it's a great question. Um well, first of all, again, you've, or you've entered it into the field for us all to consider. So right there, people are taking a pause and we're all going, oh, wow, right. I want a body of work or one of my brain trust members yesterday on our call um, who's very successful at what he does already but is really think considering is he want his focus to be to become the very very best in his field at offering this one particular program versus oh I'm done with that I've done it we've done it we've done it let's let let's go make something new which is something we all can relate to right not saying one or the other is better but one begins to, one, question there is, what am I willing to give up in the pursuit of a body of work? And we have our friend Seth Godin always talking about all the things he doesn't do, the company size that he doesn't grow, the meetings he doesn't have, that he's not on Facebook or Twitter, right? So very kind of mundane example, but very powerful at the same time of this kind of choices that we have to be willing to make To build a body of work. But then I think the deeper question is we have to believe that we're capable and worthy of it.
1: Okay. So there's a lot there, actually. Um, The part about what you're willing to give up Mm -hmm. uh, is, is one of those things. I have a feeling that the internet perpetuates this cultural narrative of the things we think we should give up even when we don't want to. Uh, oh, yeah,
5: well, our whole, yeah, I mean, our internet does, magazines do, TV does, yeah, but yeah. internet in particular, especially the personal growth internet.
1: <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, and, and, and then the other thing is, it's, it's, like, I realized, uh, I've been willing to give up stability, I have been willing to give up any semblance of what should be normal by the age of 36, 37, in order to create a body of work, mainly because I think on some level, I believe it's going to lead me to what I'm supposed to be doing with my uh. whole life. So two questions. Um, Well, I think one really big one Um, you talked about being a one, you know, how do you cultivate, how do you figure out what you're willing to give up? Mm-hmm. Uh, determine whether it's really worth giving up, whether it's really what you want, or it's whether what you think you should want based on what you read on some you know crazy blog post that <laughs> somebody like you or Danielle Laporte or Tim Ferriss wrote, <laughs> uh, which I, I really do believe some people have actually gone so far down that path that they've lost sight of their own interests and their own values. Oh yeah,
5: preach the truth, there, boy. Yes. And <laughs> the
1: other thing is that you know how do you cultivate a belief that it is possible?
5: Well we don't cultivate the belief by looking for proof in the outside world. We cultivate the belief by through our own direct experience. Am I enjoying this? Yeah. Am I able to continue to live this way? They're very important questions you're asking. I'm so glad you're asking them because this subsection of the internet we live in, often sells people a bill of goods that is so unfair, which is if you make the sacrifices and you follow what you love, you not only will make a million dollars and be beloved by all, but you will also know exactly what you're supposed to be doing. This following of the thread of our core desire is always an experience. It's never a place we arrive at where we get rewarded. The rewards are nice along the way, but they truly don't mean anything. they truly don't. And that sounds so annoying to say. Yeah. Um, so I, I, yikes, this is so important. This, let me just rewind my thoughts for a second. Um, okay, so we don't, the direct experience of doing what we love remains a, available to us no matter what. But we have to keep checking in with ourselves and, again, with other people, a mastermind group, um, other people who we trust to say, do you think I'm paying too high of a price? And we can't look to someone else to tell us, but we can look to reflect it. I was reading um, a comment in a book In my research the other day, and it was about an artist who pursued a traditional career and was financially successful, but incredibly unhappy and gave it up to pursue her art and is incredibly financially unhappy, but blissfully happy in her work. So that's the question. Are we willing to keep paying that price? And there's, it's going to change as, you know, let's say you fall in love and want to have a baby, Mm -hmm. you know, Hey, suddenly like, wow, I really want to make sure this kid has a safe place to live. And I really want to make sure they get to go to that cool Waldorf school. And wow, I'm willing to make those changes. Um, So it's a constant conversation with ourselves, but it's not about the outcome. I think that's where we get tripped up. And it's not about figuring out what we're supposed to be doing. It's about living it and seeing what feels most true and juicy here right now. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's helpful.
1: Oh yeah, that's, that's, that's incredibly <laughs> helpful. I mean, I, I think what we're talking about is opening up a landmine right here.
2: <laughs> it
5: uh, is, but it's such an important landmine because we all want answers, right? So we look to people on the internet or we look to people on television or in magazines and we say, please tell me what to eat. Please mm-hmm. tell me mm-hmm. how to pray. Please tell me what will make me rich and famous. You know, our current disease, all desire to be rich and famous. And then, but they can't tell us. They can't tell us because they're not us.
1: (laughs) So that's going to take me to a question that wraps up things a bit, um, but I want to come back to that in a sec. Let's talk about our creative process for a bit and how, you know, somebody like you who's built such a substantial body of work approaches your work every single day.
5: Well, I'm someone who knows I need ritual and stability and tiny baby, uh, steps on all my projects. And I'm someone who hates that. So I need it. I know I need it because I'm, um, a seasoned creative. I've been doing this full time for 25 years. So I know what I need. And I can't tell you how often I'm like, oh, really? Today we don't. We could check email first. Come on. It's okay. Just for today. We're in the middle of a launch. That's okay. So I'm constantly having to be in conversation with myself like, no, no. And then setting up the conditions to stay with the morning ritual. So the writing comes after meditation and breakfast and nothing else happens. And paying the price. So I don't exercise first thing in the morning. So sometimes the exercise doesn't happen. So I gain a little weight. Am I okay with that to pursue that creative process? Um, The other thing is reminding myself that I must use my body. I love to be a giant head. I love to just sit here, sit here, sit here, work, work, work. And I have to use all kinds of things like freedom and timers to make me work for 50 or 60 minutes and then get up and go do the laundry or go outside or play with the dogs. Um, and then it's a deeper question of what am I devoted to and how devoted am I to this desire to create and what stories and uh, thought patterns are clouding that and keep walking away from them.
1: Hmm. That's interesting. <laughs> you know, it's, it's funny because I, I've asked people about that creative process and it never is the same across the board. I think you, you find what works for you.
5: You do. Yes. And that's the other thing. We're always like looking at, oh, what's that daily ritual book of artists? Uh-huh. Who did yep. that, you know. that, And it was like, oh, tell me what to do. Well, more caffeine. Oh, no, he died of having too much caffeine. <laughs> wanna... I forgot who that was. Was it Trollope? No, I'm not sure.
1: Yeah, no, I, I it, it's funny because I mean, I have a ritual that I follow religiously, just like you. Uh, and, and there are moments when I crack.
2: Well, of course. Yeah,
1: you know, today I'd rather just check into Facebook or Twitter and see, you know, yeah. what's going on. Uh, you know, I think the, the the last sort of thread that I want to kind of look into, um, and I think to some degree we kind of talked about this throughout our conversation. You know, the very beginning you said, you know, what your work has come down to is how we lead the truest versions of our lives. Mm. Uh, and I'm really, really interested in, in how we uncover what that is for us.
5: Well, I think it's an act of paying attention. It's an act of believing that is worthy, even if it doesn't mean we make money from it mm-hmm. or that we get love for it. Um, it's trying to pay attention to the moments when it flickers in us, because I think the story is our truer version of our lives or our truer choices are going to show up with angels and trumpets. But the truth is it's usually like a flicker of a goldfish in a murky pond. Mm -hmm. How can I be so paying attention to what those flickers are and trying to trust them and noting when I follow them and it felt great, but I still didn't get the outcome. Now, what do I want to take in from that? I mean, I'm always preaching, like, what's the next simplest step? Do it and then stop and ask, what did I learn? So there is a reflection process in this, but mainly it's like being a bloodhound, right? What is it? What is it? What right right here? What is it? Um, And then knowing that you're going to fall asleep for weeks or months or years, sadly, years at a time to it. Mm -hmm. And can you bear that when you wake back up again Hmm. and not use it as an excuse to never look and follow it again?
1: Wow. So I I want to close with uh, one final question, uh, which is how we finish everything here. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable?
5: Ooh, let's just say it's somebody who follows their truest life. <laughs> <laughs> I kind
1: of I mean, saw really. that coming. <laughs>
5: yeah. I mean, isn't it? You know, when you, again, you think of someone like a Georgia O'Keefe is just on my mind so much today and I, you know, she's unmistakable. Is it because she dressed in black? Is it because of her nose? Um, I think it's because she kept saying, this is what's true for me. And she paid a huge price. It was not easy for her even though she did have great success at it. And um, and she paid a huge price in the end of her life for some of her choices, too. But that's okay. She was willing to do it. So I think unmistakable is being a bloodhound on what's your truest desire, what's your truest version of yourself, and what calls to you moment by moment. Hmm.
1: Well, I, I think that makes a beautiful way to sum up uh, an incredibly poetic conversation Jen, uh, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us uh, and share some of your insights and your story and your journey with our listeners here at The Unmistakable Creative.
5: Total blast. Thank you for having me.
1: Yeah, and for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. If you like what you heard, the greatest compliment you could give us is to share the show with a friend and let people know what you think by leaving a review on iTunes. Thanks for listening to The Unmistakable Creative.